0: Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on The Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. Welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa.
1: And I'm Allison.
0: Now in past episodes, when we we're presenting pieces to you, we often tell you how new music was received by the general public, as well as the critical reviews of the pieces at the time. Of course, throughout history and even into our modern times, music critics have existed to tell us what's hot and what's not. So we thought today that we would look into the critics' side of things and look at some of the most famous, or infamous, critics, and how they affected the music scene with either their high praise or their scathing reviews.
1: So let's start out first with what is a music critic and why do we need them? The Music critics, though likely to have been around as long as music performance, we really first see them popping up in the mid-1700s. Now, this is a time when newspapers and magazine publications were really starting to take off, thus giving critics actually a place to publish their writings. It was also a time when art music became more accessible to the middle classes, and there was more of a demand for such critiques and reviews. One of the first critics to gain wide popularity was Johann Adolf Scheibe, who had famous takedowns of J.S. Bach in his weekly journal Der Kritische Musikhaus. But what really is music criticism?
0: Well, that is a bit of a difficult question to answer, but let's try. By definition, as found in Encyclopedia Britannica, it is a, quote, branch of philosophical aesthetics concerned with making judgments about composition or the performance. For a more modern take, Daniel Mendelssohn wrote in the New Yorker article The Critic's Manifesto that, quote, The role of the critic, I repeat, is to mediate intelligently and stylishly between a work and its audience, to educate and edify in an engaging and preferably entertaining way. Describing the role of a critic less as a critic and more as an educator, as somebody whose role is to break down the barrier between performance and the masses.
1: Because how can we really critique music? After all, music is simply sound. We see time and time again that what sounds nice to one person is unbearable to another, so these critiques run the real risk of ending up being just one person's opinion on if they like to work or not. Another issue is that since music is literally just sound, reading about it isn't always useful. If you've heard a piece, then you have your own opinions about whether you like it or not. And if you haven't heard the piece, then written descriptions of it still give you no real clue as to how the notes and rhythms actually sound. Over the years, critics have tried to propose some guidelines to make critiques more about the actual quality of the music rather than just personal opinion.
0: For example, the famous critic Eduard Hanslick, who published a whole book on music criticism, discussed looking at pieces from a formal perspective. Essentially, there are rules a work must follow, criteria it must meet to be considered good. And Hanslick went so far as to suggest that when a critic is assessing a work for its aesthetics, they should look solely at the work alone, not the history of the music, the personality of the composer, not the major social events going on in the time period. Literally, just the music, stripping away all context. And to that end, Hanslick was a great lover of Brahms, who wrote, Pure music, and was a scathing hater of Berlioz, whose music required a program, essentially an outside force, to fully comprehend it.
1: In many past episodes, we have brought up the quote, War of the Romantics, and looking into our research for this episode, it seems that this war was egged on due to such criticisms. And by this reasoning, Hanslick would have advocated that you can, in fact, separate the artist from the art. He would suggest that you can, in fact, go on liking the Ring Cycle operas, even though Wagner was a highly problematic figure. And this is quite the opposite of what we usually do here on The Coffee House, where we really want you to get to know a composer before we jump into any musical analysis. And thus is the difference between music history and music aesthetics.
0: Music criticism also seems to be a driver of trends, and interestingly, the opposite is true as well. If a popular critic is looking for a certain sound, it may become vogue to write music featuring that sound. However, after a while of critics hearing that same thing over and over, they will grow tired of it. Their critiques will start to say things like unimaginative or passe. So composers will grow and change, and look for a new way to write things that are new and exciting, and thus change the trends again. So while it may be difficult to see the value in reading about something you should be hearing, it does seem that given the right frame of mind, music critics are valuable to the music scene, and they and the composers they critique are always going back and forth with production and positive or negative responses.
1: So music critique was, and still is, a very widespread job description. There have been countless critics throughout history, and here we've just collected a few names to show how diverse the industry has been over the years. We'll start with a critic named Johan Matheson. He was one of the first people credited as actually being a music critic, and he was born in Hamburg, Germany in 1681, and actually outlived Bach, dying in 1764.
0: Although Matheson was a musician and composer in his own right, his peers, particularly Handel, far overshadow him in this department. Matheson actually became a secretary to the English ambassador in Hamburg, and served as a tutor to the ambassador's son. This position of privilege and literacy allowed Matheson to begin publishing books and periodicals, And it seems like Matheson was more of a critic of the state of music as a whole, rather than targeting specific composers or works as we have grown accustomed to.
1: And of course, we've already mentioned Edward Hanslick, who seems to have heralded in a new style of music criticism and tried to unify the discipline. Hanslick was born in 1825 in Prague and lived through quite a lot of changes in music as he died in 1904 in Baden, Austria. Like so many musically-minded folks we discuss here, Hanslick's first endeavor in higher education was actually going for a law degree. And unlike others we talk about, Hanslick actually completed his degree. When he finally turned to music criticism after his law profession, the shrewdness he acquired from this profession served him well. As we've already explained, he wanted to look at a piece only within itself without any outside forces or knowledge affecting his opinion. And he himself likened this mode of thinking to a lawyer being presented with evidence in a trial. The writing Hanslick is most remembered for is his masterful Vom Musikschlick, Schonen, On the Beautiful in Music, which was written in 1854. This was such a popular book that it was translated into several languages and reprinted numerous times until 1891, and this is where Hanslick presents a majority of his ideas about the role of the music critic.
0: It's common among composers to turn to criticism at some point in their career, and Robert Schumann is no exception. Schumann was writing his critiques in generally the same time period as Hanslick. He was born in 1810, and lived until 1856. However, where Hanslick tried to evaluate and write about music in a definitive manner, Schumann was often writing about romantic music in a romantic way that often came off sounding like poetry or prose. For example, in a critique about Weber's Konzertstück, he writes about passages as having, quote, "...grandeur of expression that made one think of an attack on a battlefield." Hanslick would not have approved of such writing, as how would that tell a reader what the music actually sounded like? Schumann, like Hanslick, published his works in his own publication, Neue Zeitschrift for Music, and wrote under three pseudonyms, Floristan, Eusebius and Raro. Apparently, each had a slightly different writing style and unique thoughts on music.
1: Cesar Kiwi is one of the more often forgotten members of the Mighty Five Composers of Russia. He was born in 1835 and lived until 1918, thus, placing him yet again alongside Hanslick for critical writing. In addition to critiques, Kiwi was really a reporter of the whole music scene often writing articles just talking about the life and times of the famous musicians, kind of like an Entertainment Weekly sort of vibe. As a Mighty Five nationalist, Kiwi wanted his writing to promote Russian music and the Russian sound was often displeasing to a more traditional Western world, so Kiwi wanted to add his voice, again under a pseudonym, as a positive force of promotion. Kiwi was often a bit sensational in his writing. He often incorporated sarcasm and was not afraid to write a major takedown if he didn't like the work.
0: There are, of course, thousands more names we could drop here, but you get the idea. And here in the 21st century, you might think that the modern music critic has it easy with the advent of music streaming and ease of communication. Surely they could just point to a YouTube video of the piece or performance in question and say, Here, don't you see what I mean? But according to the New York Times chief critic, Anthony Tomasini, it's still not that simple. The accessibility of classical music can often make their job even more difficult. Quote, it's very hard to convey sounds through words. Perhaps that's what we most love about music, that it's beyond description, deeper than words. Yet the poor music critic has to try.
1: And with the accessibility of recordings and videos of performances just a click or voice command away, critics are more vulnerable than ever to opinions that dissent from their own. Additionally, on discussion forums, everyone can be a critic, and in a way, they can make the traditional critic's job obsolete. But embracing those new communities can instead elevate the quote art form of criticism, argues former Washington Post critic Anne Majette. These communities are, quote, the kind of interaction that makes possible the ability to build a community of people who love music and think about it as a wonderful thing, and not something newspapers have been able to do.
0: In the face of these challenges, and with fast-paced deadlines, modern music critics will increasingly augment their reviews with critiques and musings on the state of the music industry, as well as advocacy pieces. Violinist and critic Jennifer Gersten wrote in 2018 that there is a tendency of critics to critique less of the work itself and instead, quote, to ask what a given concert is doing for the reputation of an institution and for the field at large. Can we use this concert, this particular piece, as a sign that there are better things to come? End quote. And this style of investigative criticism can bring about meaningful and positive change for an institution or its performers. In 2019, Van Magazine ran a piece exposing the culture of fear and professional misconduct surrounding Daniel Barenboim's iron grip on the Staatsoper Opera House in Berlin, resulting in increased transparency and scrutiny into the institution's operations.
1: Modern criticism often centers around the common thought that the classical music industry is "quote under attack," in offering a plethora of possible solutions. But often critics are accused of perpetuating a culture of elitism and inaccessibility that seeks to put classical music, as Jennifer Gersten puts it, quote, into a padlocked box, when a more enlightened view of the music would come from encouraging us to think about it for ourselves. Regardless of if a particular piece of criticism elevates or detracts from the promotion of the industry as a whole, it is always fun to have a bit of a laugh at the expense of some of the critics who got it completely wrong. So let's comfortably close our critical conversation by chuckling at the marks that were so completely and widely missed.
0: George Bernard Shaw famously wrote that Brahm's Requiem was, quote, so execrably and ponderously dull. And sometimes composers can be their own harshest critics. Edvard Grieg himself once wrote that his own famous work in the Hall of the Mountain King was, quote, Something that I literally can't stand to listen to, because it absolutely reeks of cow pies, ultra Norwegianness, ness and trollish self-sufficiency.
1: Constant Lambert wrote of the music of Edward Elgar. It has, quote, an almost intolerable air of smugness, self-assurance, and autocratic benevolence. Which seems harsh until you remember that Elgar literally wrote a piece called Pomp and Circumstance. Now Asa, have you heard of the music of Jacques Offenbach?
0: Of course, he wrote the Can-Can song.
1: Oh, so you have heard of him, in spite of the Chicago Tribune writing that, quote, he has written nothing that will live, nothing that will make the world better. His name, as well as his music, will soon be forgotten.
0: Now, if you think these are colorful, J.L. Klein topped everybody with the most colorful critical language I have ever read when he said about one now-revered German romantic, quote... <clears throat> reveling in the destruction of all tonal essence raging satanic fury in the orchestra this demoniacal lewd caterwauling scandal-mongering gun-toting music the darling of feeble-minded royalty of the court flunkies covered with reptilian slime, and of the blase hysterical female court parasites inflated in an insanely destructive self-aggrandizement by Mephistopheles' mephitic and most venomous hellish miasma into Beelzebub's court composer and general director of hell's music, Wagner. Wagner. <laughs>
1: One Boston critic suggested that egresses into the new Boston Symphony Orchestra should be labeled as, quote, exits in case of Brahms.
0: (laughs) Now, though we all have our bit of fun at the expense of these critics, one of my favorite things about classical music is what all of us can learn about the way we listen to and enjoy the genre by consuming as many contradictory opinions as we can, rather than putting the music in, quote, a padlocked box, We believe that healthy discussion elevates the performance and enjoyment of the genre as a whole.
1: And we hope here in our little corner of the internet that we have also added to the discussion of classical music in a meaningful way and that we have elevated your opinion of the genre. And if we have, if you enjoy what this episode has taught you, what you've learned in past episodes, feel free to share all of them with your friends who may also be interested in learning about the wonders of classical music.
0: And it has been wonderful bringing you this episode of The Coffee House today. For The Coffee House, I'm Asa.
1: And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Schumann Symphony No. 1 was performed by the University of Chicago Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find The Coffee House on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.